And now for a word from our sponsors. Are you fed up with hearing about the modern data stack only to realize that what it really means is buy these half dozen expensive tools and install them all just to get the data you need? You need right data. We combine the tools you need to turn raw data into trusted data for your business users, all in a single, modular, no-code platform. Easily do batch or streaming ingest, transform data, and build and orchestrate pipelines in our Data Factory Data Engineering module. The tools essential to delivering high-quality, reliable data through data observability, profiling, and ML-powered business rule generation are all in our Data Trust module. And to make it easy for users to find and take action on all that trusted data. Data Market is the next-gen catalog that makes it easy for users to find data products, to request access, and to start using the data through APIs, connectors, or even generative AI-powered data analytics. Get a free trial and learn why companies like Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, and General Electric chose right data for their data teams and how you can cut your data stack costs by 50% at GetRightData.com. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mont. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 264, Will Gen AI and Data Mesh Really Mix? Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Mato Srinoff, who's the CEO at Nexusleep. Overall, we are super early in the generative AI cycle, and hype is huge. This discussion is one of early impressioned and not fully formed answers. It's too early for that. This isn't about these are all the answers. It's about Hey, let's let's share some context here. Also, FYI, there were some a ton of technical difficulties in this episode, and the recording kept shutting down and hadn't having to be restarted. So thanks to Modoff for sticking through. And hopefully it isn't noticeable that we it was recorded in like five or six chunks. 
generative AI in this summary and, and throughout the episode will mostly be shortened to Gen AI. Um, LLM also stands for large language models, which power generative AI for those folks who aren't aware. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Madoff's point of view. Number one, potentially controversial one. An emerging best practice seems to be having layers of LLMs. One model where you might ask it complicated questions, and the second model is trained specifically to vet the answers for correctness and governance concerns or things like that. Number two, the cost of running many models in production is typically actually quite low, at least infrastructure-wise. Instead of an always-on architecture, most organizations are leveraging these LLMs in a serverless architecture, you know, they, or they might leverage APIs from other people providing the models. So essentially, you're only paying a few cents per query for most of the LLMs out there. So it's not that there's going to be a huge, huge infrastructure cost. Number three, potentially controversial, use Gen AI as, quote, a scalpel, not a broadsword. Many are trying to use these LLMs in overly broad ways and getting not so great results. Number four, the ability to take a mountain of data and get something out of it in a structured way isn't really a new concept. We've been trying to do that for years with data mining. It's just that it is finally maturing into something more widely useful and usable when it comes to generative AI. Number five, People are generally still only trying to solve pretty shallow problems with generative AI, you know, such as writing an article. Personal note here, that's probably good because most people aren't ready to do the, the work necessary to have Gen AI be usable for much deeper use cases. Number six, potentially controversial, we may need human handlers for LLMs to do Gen AI well. If we aren't sure of the quality of the answers and we need high quality answers, there needs to be guardrails and probably a human in the loop. Personal note, this might prove to be better than having the human just do the analysis or it might not. It remains to be seen. You know, sometimes it's uh, you're, you're spending so much time doing the cleanup and the checking that it would have just been better to have somebody do it in the first place. Number seven. If you have the right guardrails in place, there isn't really any harm in starting to work with, with Gen AI, but you have to understand it's early days and there are definite sharp corners for you to cut yourself on. That human in the loop is important for a myriad of reasons, and you have to be careful around things like privacy. Number eight, another potentially controversial one. It's better to start at domain level questions and focus on domain specific problems right now with Gen AI. That way, you can more easily control the inputs you feed into the Gen AI, and it can help with more specific targeted questions rather than kind of these things that a lot of people are using ChatGPT for and just trying to have it answer all the questions. Number nine, look at machine learning use cases. Creating narrow focuses for each model has been proven to be a far better strategy instead of creating like kind of one overarching model to try to solve many problems. Why not try the same with LLMs, creating models specific to topics? There's a lot of stuff that's open sourced out there that can help with this as well. Number 10, relatedly, you can add more focus areas to an LLM as you train it. Trying to get it to understand everything at the start will likely overwhelm the LLM to a point where the quality of your answers will fall. 
Number 11, LLMs can be used to infer relationships between domains or data products. You can still have you, you still have to point them at high quality data and you need someone to check their work, but they could be used to more easily find out where data products already are or should be interoperable. Number 12, a potential good use case is to have generative AI models focused on finding those potential relationships and then use a second gen AI model that's more targeted at finding information based on those relationships. You have one that's specific to identifying the relationships and then another that's finding kind of more of the uh, deeper understanding there. Number 13, potentially controversial, you shouldn't be training Gen AI models from scratch. Start with one of the many open source models available and train it on your specifics. Leverage work that others have already done for you. You could train them by having your business specialist share information with the LLMs. But again, this is about you don't want to have to go out and hire a bunch of people that are such experts at LLMs to train each one individually. There's already uh, incredibly good starting points out there for a lot of topic areas, and there's a lot, lot, lot of these. Number 14, since everyone essentially has access to the same models, companies will differentiate on the information and especially the quality of the information they feed their LLMs. Finally, number 15, potentially controversial one, Gen AI may be more useful for data producers than data consumers. They still need to focus on the fundamentals, but Gen AI can really make those producers more productive. You know, personal note, imagine being able to get like five sample data models or be able to ask an LLM to figure out the best way to make your data fit with other data products to be interoperable. It can help you really to figure out how your data can fit into the overall um, set of, of information out there on the mesh. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Madhav Srinath here, who is the CEO of Nexus Leap. And we're going to be talking all about Gen AI and data mesh and kind of, you know, there's multiple different ways that Gen AI could be used. You can either say that you need data mesh to actually power Gen AI, so you've got actually clean data. Is it that um, you actually put Gen AI on top of, of uh, your data mesh, or do you use it as part of the platform to kind of face your producers, all sorts of things. But before we get into that, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Absolutely. Scott, really good to be here. Uh, my name is Madhav Srinath. I am the CEO of Nexus Leap. Uh, Nexus Leap was um, formed in the early days of COVID, uh, trying to solve these data analytics problems that are actually growing in scale uh, today. So I'm really excited to be here to talk to you more about how some of the other transformative technologies that have kind of grown in that time 
can hopefully, you know, synthesize with data mesh and create a, a better ecosystem for everyone involved. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm skeptical of putting, of, of putting just generative AI on top of the, the, your data products, because I've seen, you know, if you have anything that's mislabeled or even if it just goes, you know, like we don't even have confidence intervals around stuff where it's like, Hey, can you tell me this answer and how confident are you instead of, you know, when, um, chat GPT makes up a bunch of these um, research papers and stuff. It'll cite like a bunch of research papers, and like fifty percent are are uh, are actually exist and fifty percent don't. But I think even before we get in there, do you have a a definition when people come to you and say, "We think we're supposed to be doing this Chat GPT thing, but we don't know what it is"? Like, do you have a way that you explain generative AI for those people out there that you know? I don't want to say anybody's living under a rock, but even I really struggle as to what exactly are we trying to do with this and, and where do you see a lot of people trying to leverage it for for data? Definitely. Generative AI, I mean, I think when it, when it first started, um, it, it actually, it, it started with the ability for us to look at large amounts of, of bytes, uh, not just data that are structured or unstructured, but just lots of stuff and, and actually try to get something out of it. Um, that's funny because we, we've been talking about that exact concept for a long time called the data mining. Um, we, we've tried to take unstructured data and make it structured and do something with it. Um, generative AI actually just takes an approach where uh, it, it just has a lot of things under the hood with, with transformers, with generative adversarial networks um, that create and, and kind of work with each other to vet out what's actually real and what's not. And then create and then provide an output to the user such that um, it's actually readable and, and it at least passes the sniff, the sniff test. Um, the problems we've seen people try to solve with generative AI tend to be very shallow, usually. Uh, they'll say things like, uh, write me an article uh, on this. And they're like, oh, this is so great. I have generative AI creating articles. Um, that's really such a small use of what actually it can do long term um, because it's, uh, it's a... It's a very, it's a very, um, it's not a, it's not a wholesale use case. It's a retail use case. We're saying I need to use generative AI to do one thing, but it actually could be um, a big part of a larger ecosystem of data products. And this is where this is where we start talking about data mesh um, as a way to replace the monolithic model because of the way that business complexities are scaling. And now we're trying to force this new way of, of dealing with data at large enterprises. And generative AI, it's actually, it's kind of, it's kind of rising in a similar way to address additional business complexities. And I think it's really interesting when those two come together because it's not necessarily a replacement. And then I think it still needs to be done with a very, um, very intentional mentality to say, it's not going to give the correct answer. But if it doesn't, how can we put a human in the loop to make that happen? Um, so at this point in time, I think the best thing to think about generative AI is if we, if we can incorporate gen AI into this whole process in such a way that we do have large amounts of data that we put together, but there is a human in the loop making sure that these are legitimate. Yeah. Awesome. And, and I think this also kind of brings in that question of like, we're almost talking chicken and egg, but they're kind of almost, and, uh, in competition, but also not. And so of like, 
do, do you need to be doing data mesh to to have generative AI work, right? Sometimes people are pointing at things that isn't clean data and saying, what can you tell me about this? And that they're like, okay, I am doing it in this small scale versus, okay, if you want to do this at the organizational level, like how quality of data do you have to, to have? Do you have to be... and how many inputs do you have to have if you're at three data products or you put in your, your gen AI over top of it? So I'd love to hear kind of where you think that 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 starts to become something where somebody can have an internal model versus these shallow use cases that you were talking about of like, hey, help me write an article. First of all, I think if we think about fidelity of products, so obviously data as a product is one of the core tenants of data mesh. Uh, but if we think about fidelity of a product, it always starts in the MVP stage. It starts in a prototype stage. And even generative AI in the prototype stage very much can be um, naive. It, it can create, it can give you answers that make no sense. It can cite uh, resources that don't exist. Um, and, and therefore, I think anything we do in the prototype stage definitely needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But we also don't need to forget the scale potential it can have if we have something around it to either, first of all, be a little bit more prescriptive about what it takes in as potential answers or a corpus that it uses that's much more prescriptive to the business use cases. Um, and also for the responses it gets, maybe there's another model or some kind of wrapper on top that filters out what does make sense, what doesn't make sense, uh, what is sensitive, what's not sensitive. And, and before the final responses are used in any kind of way, there's just kind of a, a fully fledged product around the generative AI component itself before it's used at that kind of scale. So I guess the the long answer to your question, Scott, is you know there's no harm in starting with it, but it has to be iterative. You know, so you can start with generative AI, but then you have to build what you need to do with your your domain ownerships in data mesh, for example. That needs to also continue going before you can come back and say, for this domain, I need this kind of LLM. And then you can go back and say, okay, well, how do I build some kind of self-serve data platforms? And then within those data platforms, how do we inject Gen AI? And then go back and say, how do we make sure the data is clean for the self-serve data platforms? And then if we think of generative AI as just sort of the way that, that users interact with the data, then you can almost replace it with any dashboard. Any dashboard, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If that dashboard's getting bad data, it's going to show bad data. And so the same kind of situations you go through to clean that up you probably have something very similar when you go through, you know, using generative AI. So are you thinking, it, it almost sounds like you're talking about very small scale LLM of talking, and, and by the way, LLM is large language model for anybody that isn't aware. Um, I know you are, but <laughs> for anybody out there listening. Um, but are you starting to think about that you have these really tightly contained things around each data product versus hey, we're going to put this across all of our data products and somebody's going to ask a question and we got a 40, 50% chance or you have to have human intervention where someone goes, oh, okay, you're asking that question. I have to check it. Like you start to get into a lot of guardrails, but I, I have heard of people doing these things of like, hey, we're going to put it at some um, like financial statement documentation. Like, you know, you think about a collateralized debt obligation, a CDO, there's just this massive, massive document that, that, you know, and somebody wants to understand what does this look like? And it'll go, here's what I got. And here are the links to the places within the document. So you can check my work, but like, it's, 
it's just a quick, quick way of doing that. Is is that how you're seeing that go? Is it are, you know? Are you saying we should do the small scale or we should do these these big big ones? The the start should always be at the domain. That's I'm a big proponent of that. Let's start with the domain specific problem because that's the closest to the business impact. The 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 generalists at the domain level are the ones that realize the the business side of what what this could enable. So we always want to start at the domain. And and what we've noticed also is the more specific you are with LLMs, um, you the more specific the responses. So if you really tune into First of all, tune in in many ways. You can fine tune the model itself to your purpose. But even if you start doing in-context learning and you go through some sophisticated techniques to um, add some context to the LLM specific to the domain, you'll just realize that you get responses specific to the domain. So what I would say is start off specific to the domain, create models, create generative AI that is built to serve one problem, not to serve 20 problems or the problems across the entire organization. But once you have that right, the same the same principles of data mesh can apply when you take that to a higher level. If you have multiple different domains that maybe a, an executive oversees and the executive actually needs to ask questions of those multiple domains, well, they're all going to be interacting with each other via contracts. For example, there's going to be documentation that they need to put together outside of generative AI to make sure that the, the data set that they can use is still is still accessible. It's business truthful. And, and therefore, once all of that is done, you have this bottom-up approach of getting all the domains set up. There's no harm in then applying generative AI to an overall larger data set of multiple domains because you've already started with the specific use cases, solved for them, and then now you're kind of generalizing more and more. The challenge comes when you try to do it the other way around. You start general and you start going deeper then you start running into problems because you're trying to boil the ocean instead of just solving what you can right in front of you. Are you seeing that it actually can understand how, like, when I look at combining data from two different domains, I have questions that maybe somebody hasn't already plumbed for that to be, you know, they haven't done the plumbing between those two data products. And so, you know, are you seeing that it's able to make those those leaps or are you saying you shouldn't trust it to? Because again, people want to ask questions that they don't already have somebody that's already thought of compiling an answer to it. And so if that's the case, then can we trust it? Like I'm still at the place where I don't know that we can trust it. I get that, Scott. And and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, it, you can trust it as much as you are willing to emphasize it as a core component of your data mesh architecture. I say that because just because you have different domains together and you have maybe some kind of LLM on top of everything, it is going to need to go through the necessary emotions of understanding the relations between these domains that maybe aren't part of these data contracts or aren't part of the documentation available to say, you know, this is this customer exists across the retail side of things, the distribution side of things. And I don't know, the online side of things. And, and I think like making sure that this, whatever model is chosen has access to that information is going to be key to making sure that when we actually start using it, it can, it can kind of take that information and use it as part of its analysis. What I think is astounding about generative AI is it can actually make a lot of those connections for you. So not only can we use generative AI on top to say, okay, you know, let's use this and, and kind of compile it across data sets. And then that generative AI is the inter interface for other people asking questions to the data set. 
you can actually use the generative AI and, and the capabilities of it to come up with those relationships, to actually infer what the relationships between domains might be. It could be kind of like your junior business analyst helping you do that. So you have these, these different domains with all these data being outputted, and then you have a, a trusty partner helping you figure out how to create that documentation, how to create these relationships, and making sure that that one source of truth is useful for whoever needs it. So if I, if I can understand that, though, you're not saying that you would ask it these super kind of crazy cross-domain questions versus you're asking it to try to find these potential relationships. Because if you're just asking it this like big, like complex question, the more and more chance that there is that there's that it, it gets it wrong versus you're saying, hey, I want to combine data from these two things, infer some relationships or find me some interesting things that I want to to consider when I'm trying to combine those and then I can create the plumbing. Is that like you you're, it sounds like there's a lot more guardrails to it rather than kind of what we talked about, where I think a lot of people are just saying. I'm just going to throw all my data at it and it's going to give me all of my answers. It's, it is a multi-Asian problem. So what I mean by that is we don't want a single instance of generative AI to solve all the problems. But if you, have, if you use it in such a way that you can have a generative AI that takes on the role of a data engineer. So this, this, this role, this data engineer gen AI can help you come up with those relationships. Now, when we do that, the output of those relationships, those documents that are created, those artifacts, now can be used as an additional incremental training task for another instance of a generative AI model, which actually does look at everything, but it did so with the help of a previous counterpart of it, helping create the relationships to begin with. Now, the, the important part here, Scott, though, is um, it's it's not it's not just AI all around. We we want to make sure the human is part of at least the initial process, so that as we go through it, we're coming up with relationships that actually make sense. There's a vetting process. There's a, a process of making sure things are actually reasonable and accurate. And once we get to a place where that's that's fully fleshed out, it's gone through the necessary approval processes, then you actually have something, a corpus that can be used down the line for additional discovery and analysis. Yeah, and I think the the question here becomes one of of scale, right? Where if we're doing all these different things that we're kind of almost replacing people, but maybe not replacing them, or or doing things that are more imaginative yet less imaginative with Gen AI, like there's all this this kind of interesting things to think about there. But you know, you're talking about having a bunch of different models, so you need one, presumably a fair amount of data. Or, or do you not like do is is the L the first L not actually large? Is that not the input? And then um, second, I mean, is this something where you're going to have you know five AI engineers that are going around with each LLM that have to be specific to the domain that understand the domain's context? To do like what, how how expensive is this going to be for for the people out there listening? Is this going to be an arm and a leg? Is this going to be an arm? Is this just going to be, you know, a couple of digits? Like what's going on? Scale is always a problem we're solving and it's a good problem because tech is evolving so fast. And so we're actually able to scale more effectively than we've ever been able to. And that applies to generative AI. The cool thing about, about generative AI and how it also ties to data mesh is um, data mesh says if, if the business complexities are increasing, 
we don't want more hyper-focused data engineers. We want more generalists dealing with the domain problems they're solving. This actually, Gen AI application to data mesh follows the same principle. What we want to try to do with Gen AI, it, it is a large language model, but a lot of these models are, are pre-trained. All these models are pre-trained, unless you want to do it for yourself, which I don't recommend. I don't recommend training a Gen AI model from zero to done. I recommend using open source models out there and then adding just a little bit necessary for yourself into that model for your usage. And the reason that's useful is it's it's being done every day. You know, we, we're, got, we're actually getting to the point where we're very used to taking generative AI and using it for our own task. We're, we're asking it questions. If we wanted to say, hey, you know, I, I need you to write me this article on best practice data engineering. It writes you something. You're like, wait a sec, that, no, 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 I want you to be more specific about, you know, the AWS cloud platform. Okay, it gives me that. It's like, no, 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 I want you to be specific about these services. And then there's all these, all these things you can do to make the context more and more specific. So what, what's interesting about that is it's just a conversation. So through a conversation with Gen AI, you can actually build a hyper-focused model tuned to your responses. When I say tuned, I don't, I don't mean to imply that it's going to be fine-tuned, where you have to use your own GPUs to train the model with additional input. I actually mean the model is already out there, and it's, it's actually built to take the additional context you give it and learn from it and respond using that additional context without you having to do much more work. And so where I go with that is that the answer, the question that you had around, uh, do we need AI engineers kind of behind this? I think you, you need less AI engineers than ever when you do this. You actually start, start getting into a situation where uh, these, these business specialists that have this tribal knowledge, now they can actually start giving that tribal knowledge to their own instance of Gen AI, and Gen AI will actually incorporate that in its responses. So now you have generalists able to do things without the need for AI engineers at all. And now that goes back to where in, in, this, in these domain products, you have generalists that can, that can use large amounts of data um, and use it at scale using generative AI because generative AI allows anyone to incorporate what they know into this training process without them having to fine tune or do any AI at all. So do you think of this as, well, I mean, I still, I still kind of want to get back to the, the question of cost because, you know, people don't want to be shipping their data out into G chat GPT. We've already seen chat GPT leaks and things like that. And we've also seen um, the fact that it, it can no longer ask or it can no longer answer if this number is a prime, you know, it was like 98% accurate for GPT 3.0 and now it's like 3% accurate or whatever. But we, we don't have to get super deep into that. But I, I'd love to hear what you're thinking about cost. But it almost sounds like the way people have been thinking about this is for it to answer questions for us as to with the data, like give us specific data answers versus help us understand what questions we could ask of the data. And then maybe you partner with somebody to make sure that you're asking it right to the thing where you, you say like, take me to the data and I'm going to run this against it rather than, hey, I want to know this, this complex question, like help me answer this complex question. Is that where you see this going for at least for now? Because it's, it's, we're just not at that level or maybe we would never will be where we could just ask a random question and it'll just go out again and search the whole mesh and be like, here's your answer versus here's the data 
let's help you figure it out from the data. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's moving so fast that it's even hard for us to predict where it's going to be. Um, that is such an easy answer. So I don't want to take the easy way out. But what I will say though is um, th- it's not a one-shot solution. It's not like you get you ask generative AI something and it gives you something. Um, it can very much be chained into multiple different actions that it takes. So for example, if you ask it a question, you can have it actually go through some kind of corpus and there's uh, you know vector databases with embeddings in there. And that's based on custom context you're incorporating for this LLM. And then it comes out of it with a custom answer for you, but it doesn't need to display that answer to you. Maybe you have a secondary LLM that its only purpose is actually to vet these answers out and create another filter level. It's trained separately. It's trained with governance in mind. It's trained with security in mind. And then finally, you get the answer outputted to whoever needs it. So where I'm going with that is like the applications of Gen AI are not limited to just inputting something into it and getting an answer. There's so much that can be done in a pipeline of steps, in a sequence of steps, such that you can you can go through any set of business logic requirement vetting or any kind of like integrity checks, anything that makes sense for you to go through manually, you can you can automate it and just have Gen AI be one part of that process. Who do you think is is prepared for to leverage this? Because you know, we're starting to see this prompt engineer type of thing. Do we need to have people that are, do we need to train our people to be able to actually prompt this stuff? Because when I try to use chat GPT, it ends up not giving me the the best of of responses, quite honestly. And I have had it, I've had it ask it to summarize um the uh, transcripts from one of or like two or three different episodes to see what it would do. And one time it invented a third person and it was just like, I don't know what's going on here. But do we need to, to have people that understand how to do this and that it's a grain of salt? And like, who are we pointing the chat GPT at? Because what people like the CEO is coming in and saying, I want chat, you know, I want this thing so that I can answer all of my questions and yet that's where it gets into the danger zone very, very quickly. Yeah, it's a good question. And what, what I will say is prompt engineering is, is, is not a farce. It's very much a real thing. However, it's not, it's not, a, it's not such a specialized skill set that only very few people are able to acquire the necessary you know, levels of prompt engineering to be effective. I personally think the, the biggest differentiator is when you know your business as well as you do, and you understand your business, and you understand the data that that governs your business, that runs your business, that is the biggest differentiating factor. If you're able to take that data and work with some kind of expert that can codify the data, and this is where things like vector databases and embeddings come in, then you've actually done most of the hard work that differentiates you over everyone else. Because also, if you think about it, anyone has access to LLMs, right? I mean, a lot of the best ones are open sourced. So you can take it, they're commercially viable, you can use it, and anyone can use it. So what really differentiates you over others is your specific corpus that you are adding to the context to answer your questions. So when it comes to when it comes to when do you need to start using this, um, it really becomes, it becomes simple. It, it's when you have a problem that requires you to use a large amount of data to answer questions that otherwise might not be possible. Does each person inside the company need to have a different LLM 
for each domain, for each, like, this is where, again, I, I, I asked a little bit earlier, and we don't think we dug into it that much, but like, how much does this cost, right? Is, is this only for the ones that have a ton of data and have enough money and have enough return on investment where driving insights from this is really going to be valuable versus is this for everybody? Yeah, I, I don't know the specific cost structure, Scott, I'll be honest with you. Um, I will say, though, it's it's not the exorbitant cost that it might sound like. It sounds like large language models are large costs. Um they're not quite that way. They don't scale like that because you, you do have the ability. I mean, if you think about what you're inputting in and we maybe we say that's the function of cost, uh, you're inputting in a, a, a very specific set of data that's, that's for your use case. And that's incorporated with this larger train model that you're really not touching. You're not retraining it, not really fine tuning it unless you absolutely need to. Um, and we're not even going to get into fine tuning because that's when the additional set of costs come in. You have to actually retrain it with GPUs and let's not even get into that. But if you're just if you're just having a conversation with it, it's as simple as the API cost. I mean, ChatGPT APIs, they're I don't even know what the exact cost is, but it's not something that is alarming at all. And uh, it's something that if you if you have specific context that you want to incorporate in it, um, it, it's something that is accessible to almost any team that already has the data in place. I think I think the effort comes in when you want to get the clean data together and and use that, that's where the real effort and, and time goes into it. But the cost of applying LLMs to this large corpus of data, that's mostly negligible. But I guess like when you're talking about chat GPT API cost, I've, if I've got private data, I, I'm not going to be leveraging or, or is it something that you can point it at something private and it will uh, analyze that and bring it back. Maybe you don't want to do chat GPT because it has had data leaks, but that's kind of the thing. Like I'm trying to figure out, I want to run an LLM. Do I have to run one for each person or, you know, what's what, like looking at my actual infrastructure cost. I used to be an AWS cost manager. So like, am I thinking that this is a bunch of, you know, you know, M4 or uh, yeah, M4.8XL or 16XLs that are like, 30,000, 40,000 a year for each person? Or am I thinking that I can run these on a bunch? Or or is it that I run one big LLM and there's just like little, little bits that are pushing in and out and each person has a small actual amount of data? Like I'm trying to figure out if I wanted to deploy this in a domain of 500 people, do I have to have 500 LLMs running or do I have to have even more than that? Because you think about in-depth versus about, or, or do I have like three and everybody's got their own interface or, and like, how does governance play it? I mean, I know I'm asking a bunch of these really, really difficult questions because I think people are still trying to figure this out. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I will say when we kind of uh, go back to AWS and the way they do costing, it's, it's almost like, um, it's like man hours, except they call it you know, computer hours, right? It's like GPU hours or DPU hours and the size of the computer times the amount of time is really the cost model for AWS for the most part. Um, and then that's when you're actually using the computer. But if you're storing things and it's size of the object times the amount of times you stored it or the amount of time you plan on storing it. So in the specific storage class, right? So I guess where I'm going with that is the the cost for, G, for, for Gen AIs is going to be, it's going to be, different to that. We're not necessarily training a model. So we're not, we're not going in and saying, you know, I need, I need this type of computer hour 
because that's necessary for us to train this really sophisticated model and use it. We're actually just hitting an API. So it's, it's more IO cost. I mean, what we're saying, oh, I need to hit this API, get some information, and then use that for, for my purposes. It's kind of more serverless is what you're saying, right? Like it's, I, I've been thinking yeah. of it as, as constantly running versus it's just like you don't need to have this thing spun up at all times. And so, you know, serverless, you know, as long as you're not going for super uber incredible performance, it's, it's totally fine. And so it really is based on how many queries you run. And so somebody doing a bunch of stuff, you know, maybe you've got a bunch of storage costs, but each, each incremental query is like 0.4 cents. Right? I think that is the cost or, or it's like per a thousand uh, some unit of, you know, uh, text characters or something like that. It's 0.4 cents. Right. And so it's like, OK, it's pretty freaking small. Right. Like somebody asking, you know, 10 questions of it is going to cost you four dollars. Like whoop de doo is, is that kind of what you're seeing when you're actually running it? That's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing. If it if it's becoming prohibitive, you we actually just kind of take many steps back and try to figure out if they're using it the right way. Because a lot of clients they immediately go to fine tuning or they want to build their own, and it just doesn't make sense given how fast tech is moving. Uh, by the time you're building your own or fine tuning something, there's already a much newer model out there that you can just use and um, add context to. So um, the, the the main thing here, Scott, is I don't know the exact numbers of cost, but you you actually identified the difference really well. It is serverless. I mean, yes, you could spin up an EC2 instance on on AWS and put put your thing in there and then call that. And then now you're paying for the EC2 instance, but maybe not a smart way to do it. I would I would keep it serverless. Kind of think of it as this as this thing that can just be stored as an object and then be accessed only when needed, so that you're only paying for it when you access it, not necessarily the whole time that it's around. Yeah, kind of stick it in S3 and just. Run the I can't even remember the the all the different serverless things that AWS has, but anyway. Um, so the other question that I wanted to talk about was kind of pointing this at the producers, and so it is the people who actually own the data, and they go, "What don't I know about this, right? Or what what how can you go search the mesh and see if there's any interconnections?" But I'd love to to hear how you're you're thinking about that with governance in mind because. So much of this is like, if, if I own the data, great, I can, you know, obviously I'm okay to ask a bunch of questions of it, you know, presumably, you know, maybe, maybe I can't access some of my own data. I don't know. Sometimes that probably is the case, but I'd love to hear how you're thinking about keeping things governed and how this can be the boon for the data product producer, not just the consumer. I actually think that's where this is most intriguing for me because uh, everyone starts thinking about the consumer and that's how they're using it. They're consuming Gen AI, right? Um, but if we start thinking about how we can help the producer themselves take on a lot of tasks and and do it at a scale they weren't able to do it before, now we're actually unlocking true power of Gen AI to be um, not replacements to your team, but amplifiers to your team. So you can, you can go, you know, I think I saw some stat about how everyone Anyone using Gen AI is 40% more productive. Now, I, I didn't verify those facts. So I don't know how true it is. But what I, what I do mean to say is, on the producer side of things, we, we can't skip the data management. Anything that, that we need to do to make data mesh useful, you know, keep that federated mentality actually in play and, and, and keep the governance policies 
such that um, these different domains can actually talk to each other and can trust each other. There's a lot of there's a lot of work that we need to do to keep that all set up, and and we can't let go of that work. However, we can use Gen AI to help us do that work, and that's where I think on the producer side of things, um, it, it's it's kind of a nice way to be like, okay, I have I have this junior engineer uh, who is a Gen AI helping me create these producers or making sure I have what I need to to meet the data mesh you know standards and to make sure that. I'm doing what I need for my enterprise to be successful outside of my domain. I've just been kind of thinking about we need somebody needs to create um, a data model LLM, and you just go, "Hey, suggest seven data models to me from this data, and just see what what comes back." And that it's like, "Hey, this way or this way or this way or you know, like if somebody can put in like 150, 200 sample data models, or especially if you have." something like um, in oil and gas, there's the OSDU or whatever it is. Um, and it's its its own like, you know, taxonomy and ontology and all this stuff of uh, it's its data model and all that. So it's like, help me model it to this so that I've got that or help me understand how I could fit into the greater taxonomy of the organization. And it'll be like, this is the definition of a, a customer. Your definition looks slightly different, so you can't actually match it to that or something like that. I think that could be really, really interesting. But I also do think from from seeing what happened in the NoSQL world, you know, I, I was at Datastack, so Apache Cassandra. Cassandra, you don't port your SQL model over. The, the, the best way to absolutely destroy your performance and do the worst thing ever is to port your SQL model directly over. And I keep seeing people trying to do lazy mode. And so is this something where you'd go, like, if anybody is doing lazy mode with Gen AI, they're going to cause more trouble than than help? Or do you think it, it might be able to save those people? <laughs> like, wh- which do you think? Or is it just, is it too early to say? It, it really, it, it kind of, this is where we we start. Even the generalists that are going to be part of these those these domains, um, they can't wield Gen AI uh, as a huge long sword. They still have to wield it as a scalpel. I think the that mentality still needs to be there, even if they're generalists and they're not AI engineers. Um, it, it's 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 very useful if you're specific with it. You use it to solve specific problems. It becomes becomes less and less useful when it's applied broadly with broad strokes. You don't you don't end up having the the real value come out of that. And and that's when I think it's just important to realize that um, it, it becomes much more about the the wielder instead of the tool at that point. I mean, it, it's it it's not like it's a hammer looking for nails because that actually is kind of what it is. But it's it is a tool. It's a hammer, and you're just like, where are the nails? Where could I do that? But instead of it is the tool chest, it is every single tool in and of itself, or it's it's the the handy person, right? Like. It's not the thing that actually does all the, the work for you. So, um, so I mean, we've, we've talked about a whole heck of a lot of things. You know, I, I want to be conscious of time. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to or, you know, any way you kind of want to wrap up the content of the episode? I think we talked a lot, a lot today, Scott. Uh, I currently don't have anything else. I, I think this topic is super interesting. There's going to be so much more that comes out. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we got on a, another another call sometime in the near future as we maybe even have all these questions answered. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, this the we even had a roundtable on this recently. It's something where I had stayed away from it because it felt like it was too much hype. But then when I've actually started to talk to people like yourself about here are practical uses instead of yes, it's going to solve your data mesh issues. It's going to be your data mesh, or you just point it at your data mesh, and it's like that's going to cause you more problems. But like, there people want that to happen because they again don't want to do the work. They want to hit the lazy button. So. Um, but again, thank you so much uh, for for uh, all this information on it because it really has helped me to to think about this. I'm sure there's going to be people that would love to to follow up with you. Uh, where's the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like people following up about? Really good to be here, Scott. Uh, best place to get me is definitely LinkedIn. Um, I'll, I'll make sure that you have my LinkedIn information. Uh, feel free to follow the company as well. My company, Next Sleep. Uh, we post a lot of good content there as well. Um, and in terms of following up with me, I mean, as if there's any kind of contention with anything I've said, uh, I'd love to have a discussion because I'm still learning. Uh, the technology is changing as we're speaking. So there might be something that refutes what I just said. And I'd like to learn about it so that uh, I myself can better serve my clients and uh, and my team. Awesome. Well, Madhav, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Madhav Srinath, who is the CEO at Nexusleep. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.